Well, welcome everyone uh, to the LSE. We're very happy to see such a large and enthusiastic turnout on a hot uh, summer night in, in London. So we're very happy to see you. I'm Catherine Boone. I'm a professor of uh, comparative politics and African political economy here at the LSE. And I'm very happy to be hosting tonight's event, which in many ways adds additional momentum and elan to the LSE Africa initiative, which has been underway for some years, but uh, is expanding in uh, scope and depth now as we speak. So tonight's event is something very special for us because we're welcoming an alumnus of LSE uh, back to speak to us tonight. Our speaker is Kingsley Chedu Mogalu. He is, uh, has, holds a PhD in international relations from the London School of Economics. He is deputy, deputy governor of the Central Bank of Nigeria. He's a former United Nations official. He was the founder and CEO of a corporate risk assessment firm that was headquartered in Switzerland, and he is the author of three books, uh, one of which, the most recent, he'll be speaking to us uh, about tonight. The title is Emerging Africa, How the Global Economy's Last Frontier Can Prosper and Matter. So in the book, he lays out a new paradigm or new vision for thinking about development in Africa. It's interesting, it's inspiring, and it is um, also a pretty hard-hitting critique of some of the conventional wisdoms in the scholarly and uh, practitioner's world of African development. So it's really very interesting for us tonight. The format is a 45-minute, approximately, presentation, and then about the same amount of time for Q&A. We have um, some roving mics that you'll be able to use uh, in making your comments or asking your questions, and our event will be followed by a book signing in the, in the foyer. LSE has asked me to announce that there is a hashtag for our event. It is hashtag LSEAfrica and also to announce that our event is recorded and should be available as a podcast if we don't uh, face any devastating te technical uh, complications in, in posting the proceedings. So um, on that note, I ask you to join me in welcoming Kingsley Mugalu to the LSE for his presentation tonight. It's a real pleasure and honor for me to be back at LSE um, to speak to you this evening on a topic of rising importance. Um, the topic itself is of rising importance, but my book and my lecture will ask whether the subject of the topic is in fact rising. Um, but I took my PhD here at LSE um, over a decade ago. I was a part-time student, um, traveling all over the world and writing a doctoral dissertation in between. It was a very big challenge, but I'm grateful and glad I came to LSE. I was saying to Professor Catherine Boone, um, and I thank you very much for your introduction, Catherine, that actually I probably would not have written this book, 
this particular book if I had not been a student at LSC. The reason is because as a student of international relations, um, it was here that I had the opportunity to study um, the English school theory of international relations and to read the anarchical society written by Hedley Bull. And I was saying how much that book has changed my worldview ever since. Um, and it was an application of that thought process towards African economics and African development, um, especially in the current context in which there's a lot of interest in Africa as an economic opportunity um, that led to this book, um, Emerging, Emerging Africa. The title is loaded. First of all, the title is Emerging Africa. I deliberately did not use the word Africa rising. If I were to have used that phrase, I would have titled the book Beyond Africa Rising. But I chose to use the title Emerging Africa. And for some reasons, because I think Africa is indeed emerging, but I question whether it is rising. And I'll come to that in a moment. The subtitle of the book is How the Global Economy's Last Frontier, in quotes, can prosper and matter. And I use the subtitle, Last Frontier, in quotes, because the question is, whose last frontier is Africa? It's certainly not my last frontier. It's my first frontier. Um, so, and that's why I put the title, uh, the Last Frontier, in quotes. And I talked about how the continent can prosper and matter, because prospering and mattering are two things that are the heart of the matter for Africa in a context in which Asia has risen to prosper and matter. The West has pretty much prospered and mattered for a very long time. And so now we have the rise of the rest as we, as we hear. So can Africa be part of that rest that has risen? And that's what I discuss in the book. And so the title of my um, lecture this evening um, and we have it on the record. I will not read it. I will speak to it. Um, but the lecture is, is there for anybody's record. Um, so the title here, now come back to the term Beyond Africa Rising. Um, and I talk about the future of the global economy's last frontier. So I think we've clearly seen in the last several years certainly in the past decade, that Africa has emerged in the world's uh, consciousness in the context of an evolution in the image of that continent. It is no longer um, seen the way it used to be, as just a basket case, wars, disease, famine, we are the world, put money together, let's send to them, them. No. Today, Africa is becoming something of a new normal, where people all over the world recognize that it's a normal place where people can do business, it's a normal place where people can aspire to prosper, and where people are indeed prospering, doing things that create prosperity and create wealth. So we, we're no longer seen as a hopeless, quote-unquote, hopeless continent, as the economist said on its uh, cover story many years ago, which set off a huge firestorm. And perhaps that pang of guilt has led them to several new cover stories 
with the theme Africa Rising. So they swung from one extreme to another extreme. Um, now, so today, Africa uh, is emerging, and this emergence and the positive evolution of the continent's image has led to a growth of Africa rising, uh, an Africa rising industry. Um, you know, and you have a lot of enthusiasts, a lot of academicians, a lot of analysts, a lot of business executives who are caught up in the epiphany and excitement of the new frontier. And that's all very well. Um, three factors very clearly have shaped this trend. The first is that the wars for which Africa and the conflicts for which Africa used to be much better known, most of them have ended. And Africa today is a continent that is largely at peace. Still a few fringe things going on here and there, South Sudan, Central Africa Republic, and so on. But they are the exception now. They are not the rule. And that's a good thing. That is progress. So that's one of the reasons why we have the new perception of Africa. The second reason is that macroeconomic stability has been broadly established across the continent over the past decade or 15 years. Inflation is down. Uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, the average rate of inflation was about 25% in many African countries. Today, it's 10% or less. That is because of improved macroeconomic management, because of the rise of independent central banks in several African countries, better fiscal management by ministries of finance. So the macroeconomic stability broadly that has been established across the continent has not gone unnoticed. And that has increased uh, hope in the continent. Now, at the same time, you know, the GDP, the, the GDP growth in many African countries has continued apace. Um, the average GDP growth in sub-Saharan Africa in the decade leading up to 2013 was 5%. In some countries, 6%. In some other countries, like Nigeria, the average was like 7%. And so you have better macroeconomic indic indicators to some extent. The third factor that has led to the emergence of Africa in the consciousness of the world is the global financial crisis, or some would say the great financial crisis, or some would say the Western financial crisis, because, you know, as always, like it happens in the United States, you have the World Series, and you look for the countries that are playing, and you find it's Kentucky, um, Georgia, um, Maryland, and so on. Um, so it has been with the global financial crisis, <coughs> because when you look at the theater of destruction, it's mostly in the Western world. And uh, actually, some countries in Africa were growing while all this were happening. So, but still, they were affected by the crisis in some ways. So the, the global financial crisis, which came at a time when uh, many African economies were growing rapidly, is one of the factors that I talk about. And this has led to an opportunistic focus uh, on, on Africa. And so um, you now you find uh, a lot of several, a lot of multinationals and global investment funds uh, looking at Africa as the last frontier for wealth creation, because capital will always look for where it will make a profit. And when the normal theater of capitalist operation goes down, 
It's not, you know, even those parts of the world where capital would sniff its nose at, if they find that there's money to be made there, they will create a new narrative to justify going there and making money. So all of a sudden, Africa becomes hip. Global fund, hedge fund, hedge fund, people are crawling all over the place, private equity place, private equity, all over the continent. At airports, you'll see them clutching their briefcases, looking for deals in Africa. So it's no longer um, the musicians singing for the kids with flies on their bellies, on their mouths, but it's people, real businessmen, looking for deals to make uh, and make a profit. So many of these kinds of people have seen Africa as a new frontier, and the returns on investment in Africa is the stuff of dreams. I mean... You know, the returns in Africa average 20, 25%. In countries like Nigeria, 30%. 35% sometimes. That's the highest anywhere in the world. If you want to make money, that's a place you can make money because a lot of things are still at the ground floor. Um, but the reality is somewhat more nuanced. And I say... I argue that contrary to the breathless prognostications of the Africa rising enthusiasts, Africa has become an economic opportunity in the world economy, but the continent has not fully emerged, let alone risen. It has not risen as an economic presence. It has not risen as a co-creator of global prosperity. Because that's what you mean when you say a continent has risen. It has not risen because it is an opportunity for someone else. It rises because it, in and of itself, has brought itself to a place of reckoning and can play on an equal footing with other participants and creators of wealth in the world. And that's the question. And that's the issue that I address in this book. So... Um, that's why I say that the reality is nuanced. And to prove that, I want you to look at a set of statistics that might be of interest. I say, and I, it's, it's a statistically documented fact, that Africa's share of world trade is just 3%. For all the noise, for all the sound and fury, for all the hype, Africa contributes just 3% to world trade less than 4% of total FDI, foreign direct investment in the world, goes to Africa. We have, in Africa, 54 countries. Their combined gross domestic products, their GDP, is about $1.6 trillion. That's just about the GDP of Brazil. That's just about the GDP of metropolitan Chicago. So let's keep some things in perspective. Now, all the electricity produced in sub-Saharan Africa, half of which is in fact produced in South Africa, is just equivalent to the electricity produced in Spain. And Spain has 20 times fewer people than Africa. So before you begin to beat your chest that you have risen, it is very important to soberly look at these facts and rather more productively direct your energy to how you can rise 
Because nobody's saying you can't rise. Africa can rise. There's nothing written in the stars against Africa as a continent and its possibilities and opportunities. So I think a more productive discussion, which is what I engage in in the book, is how do we unlock the secret of prosperity for Africa? So I've set the stage to show that there's hope. It's been some progress, but let's not celebrate too early, and we should now be moving into more fundamental questions. And so I propose an argument as a new paradigm for African development. And I say that what all these statistics that I've given you suggest is that the real question regarding the rise of Africa includes that of what parameters are used for measuring the continent's progress and who is doing the measuring. Is Africa aspiring to holistic development that encompasses human development? Better reality in infant mortality? maternal health, schools, and those types of things, and infrastructure? Or are we just looking at GDP numbers? I'll come to GDP numbers in a minute. They matter, certainly, but they may be overrated. Um, and I ask whether African countries have become industrialized economies. Have they become manufacturing economies? Will job creation in Africa outpace population growth and put Robert Malthus to shame? We all know the Malthusian dilemma. Is Africa assessing its own progress against benchmarks that it has set for itself? Or is its rise the received wisdom from global institutions and the ambassadors of global capital seeking new frontiers of profit? In Imagine Africa, I make the case that Africa needs an endogenous growth model that is inside out in its perspective, not the outside-in globalization-centric perspective that is framing the discussion about Africa's prospects. That's what I do in this book. So Africa needs to manufacture goods, for its own markets first, and then fan out to regional markets. You can't jump that stage and begin to talk about globalization. You're, you're trying to compete in the global marketplace, but you don't have what it takes to compete in the global marketplace, because those who are competing in the global marketplace have been at it for a very long time, and they've perfected their products, they've perfected their control of the processes that direct international trade. So perhaps you might benefit from a more introspective approach to development. So that's a very fundamental argument that I make in the book. And so what is being celebrated today as Africa's rise is the fact that the continent has increasingly become a market or a playground for globalization. That's what is being celebrated as Africa rising, but that's not a rise. And this is quite different from the structural transformation that is necessary for Africa. So without doubt, GDP growth is necessary for such a transformation, but it's not an alternative to such a transformation because the two are not the same thing, as I will show. 
So quite to a large extent, Africa's recent economic performance has been based on a cyclical um, boom in the commodities that are the mainstay of Africa's economies. Not completely, but largely. And so you have to ask yourself, if many African countries today are finding oil, but that has some implications that could be double-edged swords. First of all, is that if every country becomes an oil producer, then oil is no longer the special commodity it is in global economics and the price will fall to start with. The second is that if everybody's producing oil, but a lot of the countries that are buying the oil, because those who are producing the oil are not refining it, but they're selling it as crude oil and importing um, refined petroleum products, if those people that are buying the crude oil and refining it and selling it back to you are moving on to other forms of energy, if they're discovering shale gas, fracking, and all that, and moving on. Today, America is the number one oil producer in the world, the United States. That's a sobering fact. So that's why that model of rise is, is, is not sustainable. Now, I say that Africa needs to decide one of three things. Is Africa going to be a destination market for consumer goods and ideas, which is what is the case now? The whole continent is becoming one giant mall. Everywhere you go in Africa, shop right. This, I can't remember the names of the others, but you know, and that's okay. But, but what this means, you know, we should not confuse that for a transformational rise. That is satisfying the cravings of the middle class, and that's fine. But is that transformation? No. So that's option one. Or will Africa be a self-sufficient player based on endogenous growth? Or three, will Africa become a dominant actor in the global political economy? I argue that the first option is not an option for real progress. progress. The third option is not realistic in the near to medium term, given how far behind the continent really is in terms of the structure of its economies. And the second option is realistic and achievable within the next 30 years. So the required approach to creating the real economic rise of Africa must be based on three things. The first is what I call fundamental understandings. A philosophical approach to wealth creation and economic prosperity that prioritizes the role of the individual and the collective mind in economic and social progress. It begins in the mind. And I'm talking about what someone has called, and I refer to in the book, as mental infrastructure. You've got to have it. Now, in this context, what is required is nothing short of the reinvention of the contemporary African mind. The second approach is the need for strategy and risk management, the active management of risk in public policy in Africa, in economic management, in business, and so on. And the third is the role of governance, the rule of law, and institution building. These are the three fundamental requirements. Let me begin by discussing what I call fundamental understandings. And I will talk about worldviews and about globalization. 
because these, these are the two things that are the foundation of a discussion about Africa's rise. What is a worldview? I argue in this book that the fundamental reason why Africa has remained underdeveloped and will not rise if that issue is not addressed is the absence of a worldview in the economies and in the governance of many African countries. A worldview is how you see the world, how you interpret the world, and how you adapt your interpretation of the world to build realities that affect or change or alter your environment. In other words, you create your destiny, beginning from what is, at first, a subjective view of the world, and then you become, you establish it as an objective fact, and it becomes a reality. Let's not forget that the prosperity of the modern world began in reality only three, four hundred years ago with the Industrial Revolution. Before then, most of the world was poor. That's the truth. But more on that later. So this worldview dimension, developing a futuristic worldview, which Africa can situate itself historically in the past, in the present, in the future, deciding what is our place under the sun, what is our place in the world, why is that our place, and how are we going to build that place and make it a place where we actually inhabit. Fact of life. Civilizations have risen and fallen. I often give an example when I speak about these issues, and especially when I talk about science and technology. The original scientists were the Africans. I always say that because you must go back to the first scientific wonders, and that is the pyramids of Giza. Who built them? Nubians. We still don't know. That knowledge is lost today. But I said that's 4,000 years before the Burj Khalifa, 4,000 years before the Empire State Building, 4,000 years before the Petronas Towers, 4,000 years before the Sears Towers, you had those types of wonders. And so these are the products of worldviews. So I argue that a worldview is that inner world of the mind of an individual or group which he or she or they project in their outward actions and which influences the world around them by creating certain realities. The Belgian philosopher Leo Apostel and his research collaborators identified seven key components of a worldview. The first is that you, a worldview must have a model of the world, an understanding of how the world is structured and how it functions. A worldview must have an explanation of the world, where we have come from and why the world is the way it is. A worldview must have an element of rational futurology, which addresses the question of where we are going, how we are going to get there, what are the choices to make, what are the things we must do and what are the things we must avoid doing if we are to get to the desired future state of our destination. A worldview must have value systems. And that includes systems of ethics that guide what we should or should not do. A worldview must have a theory of action, number five, how to get to our goals by developing and implementing plans. A worldview must have a knowledge system, how we construct knowledge, 
how we address questions of what is true or false, how we assimilate knowledge. And I demonstrate this by giving an example in medicine. You have Western Standard Medicine, you have homeopathic medicine, you have acupuncture, you have African traditional medicine. These things are all effective in their own way. They are simply different knowledge systems. And so a decision that is conscious about how you process knowledge, absorb it and reproduce it, is a very important point. And that affects educational systems. More on that later. Now, the fin finally, the final point is that, of course, a worldview must have building blocks that put together um, different ideas or different theories that already exist, concepts, models from across different disciplines or ideologies. A worldview is not built out of nothing. It's built out of what already exists. Worldviews matter enormously because their outcomes are never neutral. <laughs> I started by saying that a worldview may at first be subjective, but then it will go ahead, if it's successful, to establish a fact of life that becomes an objective reality. Let me give an example. The, the transatlantic slave trade. The product of a worldview, pernicious worldview, but a worldview nevertheless. Built on the superiority of certain people and the inferiority of others. But because they were able to develop certain things that enabled them to establish that subjective view as an empirical, I say empirical, for a, a time, reality. And that thing that made it possible was technology. Always you will find, and this book will explain it, that technology plays such a critical role in the establishment of power, military or economic, that you can't live home without it. Technology is critical. So, so that's one example. Then there was another example. There was another worldview, the worldview of abolitionism, the worldview of human rights, that all human beings are created equal. That worldview was also a strong worldview and eventually succeeded in displacing the other worldview. But that worldview was so pernicious and the economic benefit that had derived from it was so huge that they couldn't, those who held it couldn't let go of it. What did they do? They moved from their transatlantic slave trade, at least as far as Africa is concerned and some other parts of the world, to colonialism. If you can't trade in the people, then just go there, rule and take what they have. Same worldview at play. I'm saying this for you to understand how worldviews have shaped modern economic reality as we are today. And that's very, very important. So from this foundation, we can then situate globalization, which is the current context of the search for Africa's rise and prosperity. We have to look at Africa at the impact of globalization on Africa's economic trajectory and why Africans need to engage the phenomenon of globalization from a somewhat different and more sophisticated standpoint. Globalization, of course, as we all know, is the process of increasing connectedness, interconnectedness of the economies of previously well-demarcated nation states. The phenomenon of the instant transmission of ideas, events, and culture over long distances through the instrumentality of technology and the impact of all these processes on local environments. That's what globalization is, in short. 
So for our purposes, there are two levels of globalization. The first is that it has two elements, the economic and the social, with technology as its chief instrument. Now, this is why we all believe that the Internet has made the world a much smaller place, and Africa now has 600 mobile telephone users, more than the United States and Europe. But second, there is a more comprehensive understanding of globalization, which must involve its scope and its motives. We have to go beyond the issues of the extent of globalization. We have to go beyond the geographies, the boundaries of which have been breached by globalization. And we must address the questions of who is globalizing and why. This is what we call global intent, or in MBA classes they would call strategic intent. So, and without this, globalization will not be what it is, and would not have had the economic and other impacts that it has had. Economic globalization has in fact hurt Africa more than it has helped the continent. It was economic globalization that led to the um, doctrines of the structural adjustment program that was pushed by a number of international economic institutions in the 80s, which made Africa to prematurely open up its economies to liberalization when they were not yet prepared to do so. So the problem is not liberalization. The problem is where you ready before you liberalized, but you accepted the economic orthodoxy of liberalization of trade, and you opened up your economies, and eventually what happened was effectively the deindustrialization of the continent. And so you became a market, a destination part. But what are you producing that the world is using? So it is against this backdrop, the backdrop of an uncritical embrace of globalization and its institutions or its agents in the mistaken belief that these forces are benign in intent or impact or agnostic in their belief or that African countries are obliged to do so as members of some presumed international community or global village. It is against this background that Africa's, Africa's rise must be evaluated. So the road to progress begins in acting, asking the right questions and answering them properly. Those questions include who is responsible for Africa's development? Who will shape Africa's destiny? The answer is that Africa and Africans and no one else. It's not foreign investors, important as they may be. It's not development partners, whoever they are. It's not the supposed international community, not foreign aid. These are not the entities that will bring about or reshape Africa's destiny. Africa's destiny must be reshaped by Africans because the destinies of everybody else that has risen has been shaped by themselves, not by external actors. So, but one of the paradoxes of globalization, lest it be thought that I am an arch enemy of globalization, I'm not. One of the paradoxes of globalization is that it has created opportunities for Africa as well. 
So Africa can tap into globalization. So that opportunity is now available for everybody. And if you can just unlock that secret, and I argue that the secret for Africa will be in innovation, in science and technology, if you can unlock that secret, you can short-circuit globalization and establish yourself as an economic power. So what are the paths to economic transformation for Africa? These fundamental understandings that I've talked about now need to be applied, and they now need to be applied in specific paths that will lead to economic transformation. The first application of these principles, of these fundamental understandings, is to take a very clear-headed approach to capitalist economics, economics, because that's the paradigm through which virtually all African states are now seeking to develop in the aftermath of the Cold War and the collapse of communism and socialism. Most of the growth of Africa's economies is driven by the private sector. That's okay. That's okay, but not unreservedly so. Let me be clear. I am a capitalist. Let's just be very clear. I'm not here to give you a lecture in Marxist doctrine. But I think that to drive real economic transformation... Capitalism must be managed by the state in a number of ways. And the question for Africa is, are we managing capitalism and the rise of the free market in this manner? So we have to make, first of all, clear choices between different kinds of capitalism. (laughs) And there must exist in African governance and public policy an understanding of these different strands of capitalism. Their implications and how they will affect the development of our societies. So you have, for example, um, you know, entrepreneurial capitalism, which is what the United States has basically used, you know, the small business model. And this model is particularly suited for Africa because we have a very strong informal economy. And there are a lot of women in our economy who trade. They're not necessarily captured by all the databases, but they're a very, very powerful player in African economies. So entrepreneurial capitalism, one type. Then you have welfare capitalism, which a lot, of, a lot of you in Europe would know about. Then you have um, crony capitalism. They say they practice it in some places like Russia or in some places like South Korea with adaptations like the Chebol in South Korea. It is also particularly suited to African countries. And I'll tell you why. It is a reality of our lives. So you can actually invent an economic model based on chronic capitalism and transform your economy. I'm telling you. It's a fact. You can do it. Why do I say you can do it? I move to the fourth type of capitalism, which nobody thought about, but somebody decided to do it and did it. And that is what is called state capitalism, China. Whoever heard of that oxymoron? State capitalism. It seems like a contradiction in terms. But China used the state, engaged the capitalist doctrine, turned it on its head. They called it capitalism with social characteristics, whatever they called it. But it did the magic. So different types of capitalism. And I recommend that each African country should combine at least two, at least two. There will actually be some, always some need for some element of welfare because every, in every society, people will never fare equally. 
And there must be something that protects or supports the weakest link. But it's a tough choice to make because you have to plan for it. Otherwise, it will drag you down. South Africa has had serious challenges practicing welfare economics and combining it with other aspects of capitalism. European socialist countries have had huge debates about the role of the state. So so this is the first application of the fundamental understandings I speak about to paths to economic transformation. You must first understand the nature of capitalism. We are all capitalists now in Africa. But we have, first of all, to understand what capitalism is, what its limitations are, and what its potentials are, and how we can use it. Someone was talking to me just a while ago about the Eco-Atlantic Project in Nigeria. This is a project in which the sea has been reclaimed, rolled back, and new luxury developments are being built. And that's great. That's great. But I say, where is the poor Eco-Atlantic? Where's the Eco-Atlantic for the poor? The reason is because capital will always go to where it will make a profit. So, it is the responsibility of the state to provide an incentive to capital, to private capital, to address social problems and make a profit while doing that, but solve fundamental social and economic problems. So, in Africa, we're finding it's as if the state is abdicating its responsibility to the private sector. Private sector growth in Africa is necessary. It is actually what will drive Africa forward. We've seen it. We've seen examples of what it has achieved. But it is important that the hand of the state remain firmly at the steering wheel. Because no other entity has the responsibility that the state has. So this is very important. And I talk about the need uh, in the book for um, our, our governments to remain engaged. Now, the next step in the application of the fundamental understanding is that African countries must embrace industrialization. You can't rise without an industrial manufacturing economy. Somebody asked me at a lecture I gave in Washington, D.C., what about the post-industrial economy? What about the post-industrial state? I laughed. I said, you think because in Chicago you can now manufacture a teacup with a 3D printer that that is a model you want me to be talking about in Africa? You can't be a post-industrial state if you haven't been an industrial state. It's not, there's a contradiction in the term. Post-industrial, post, but industrial. So industrial first, then post. So let's get industrial first before we worry about the post-industrial state. The fact that somebody is thinking about the post-industrial state doesn't mean we have to be post-industrial states. Societies develop at their own pace. And that is what I talk about looking inward. Don't want to be like all the Joneses. It's not necessary. Be self-sufficient. That is the first requirement for economic rise. So an industrial manufacturing economy is important. Huge uh, debates in Africa about agriculture. Some people say, oh no, it's not manufacturing. It's agriculture that's going to... And I say, you've got it wrong. The very definition of economic transformation means a movement away from uh, subsistence agriculture to sophisticated production. So you can remain agricultural, but you must now move to value-added agriculture. That's where we need to be, not relying on factor endowments. That's not going to help us. 
because subsistence agriculture produces only primary commodities. Those commodities are exported, others, I mean, think about all the cocoa that comes out of Africa. I watched a program on television where journalists visited an African village, I think it was an Ivory Coast, and gathered them with the village chief and brought out some chocolates. This is a village that produces cocoa, but they had never seen a chocolate bar. So, who's making the money? You, growing the cocoa, or the guy manufacturing the chocolate? We know who's making the money. No need to dwell on it. So, if you want to remain in agriculture, if you want to say, okay, agriculture is a natural endowment that many African countries have, fine, but you must reposition yourself and create a value chain-oriented agricultural process. That's, that's what you need to do. Now, one of the reasons why this is important is that even in world trade, we need to understand that 55% of world trade is based on manufacturing. Only 7% of world trade is based on agriculture. So I think that's a very important statistic to also bear in mind. Now, the next two key drivers of economic transformation are, as I keep alluding to, science, technology, and innovation, on the one hand, and education and human capital development, on the other. Both of these must be linked. Africans need to make technology and innovation a strategic priority from the standpoint of a worldview that Africa can innovate and can invent and must do so in order to liberate itself from the oppressive dominance of globalization. Some African countries, such as Kenya, are making strides, a lot of strides, in the development of innovation. Today, Kenya is developing an ambitious $15 billion silicon savanna in a place called Konza, a 2,000-hectare city, 60 kilometers outside Nairobi. And that city has been designed to turn Kenya into an attractive location for technology business and incubators and to challenge South Africa's dominance in this area. Indeed, Kenya wants to turn every one of its 21 counties or so into an innovation hub. And that's a good direction to go because we have brilliant young people in Africa who invent and manufacture all sorts of things, crude stuff. But why have these inventions and manufacturers not made Africans wealthy in the way in which the steam engine, television, electricity, the Morse code made the West wealthy? The reason is because African countries have not prioritized as a foundational requirement and strategic imperative, intellectual property and innovation. We must do this. Mark Twain, or AKA, uh, well, Samuel Clements, AKA Mark Twain, in one of his books called, or one of his characters, he, it was called, the guy was called the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. The guy made a statement and said, if I become president, the very first thing I would do would be to set up a patent office. Very first thing. Because I have looked at countries around the world, and a country without good patent laws is like a crab. It can only go sideways or backways, but it can never go forward. That's the importance of innovation. It's in the very first chapter of the U.S. Constitution. Innovative. Intellectual property, the protection of the right of inventors. 
or owners of intellectual property generally. So there is no policy to commercialize the brilliance of our young kids and you know, the Joakalis, those places under the sun. And you, know, you don't have a policy that takes what they innovate to the market. If you took those things they innovate, polish them, and, they, and you create public policy that protects them, and so everybody buys them, you can still import the foreign stuff, but that's for the wealthy guys. In Brazil, you can buy whatever you like. It's just that when it's imported, it's almost 20 times more expensive than what is produced in Brazil. So you've got to be really rich to go outside Brazil in your tastes. That's how countries rise. Brazil is the seventh largest economy in the world today. It wasn't always so. So this whole question of innovation, having a policy that supports innovation, and creating an educational system that supports education, innovation, is critical. Because that is, it is the knowledge economy. That is where the, bo- the men and the boys are separated. And the girls and the women are separated. It's in the knowledge economy. If you don't have it, you're a boy. You're not a man. If you have it, you're in the game. So it's a game changer. And African countries need to begin to embrace this and to reflect it in their public policy. You must create incentives that will make people who invent to prosper and manufacture their products in a mass manner at affordable rates that people can buy. So that's the the third thing is I talked about governance, leadership, and institution building. I don't need to spend too much on this. You know that many years ago, at a certain point, African countries became very independent all became independent from colonial powers. Within a few short years, coups, the tar, everywhere, the military took over. Now, those coups stifled the economic advancement of the continent. Because, not because African countries were under military rule per se, because in Asia, we saw military dictatorships that were more benign, that had vision for their countries. They were not Democrats, but they had a vision. And adapting dictatorship in a perverse manner, they created the progress, at least the economic dominance, of certain Asian economies. But in Africa, the dictatorships we had were venal, brutish, just interested mostly in self-perpetuation and power, and had very little economic vision. But we have also seen a return to democracy of many African countries. And it's not a coincidence that most of the economic, the macroeconomic stabilization I spoke about at the beginning of this lecture has happened under democratic rule. So there must be something for democracy. It is not a coincidence at all, at least in my view. But the question is, has democracy made Africa prosperous? That's That's a teaser that I'll leave for you. In Nigeria, people have used phrases such as infrastructure of the stomach. I don't want to go too much into detail here, but some people will know what I'm talking about. Um, So, but the difference between the wealth and poverty of nations, as we all know, their success and their failure lies in the existence or absence of strong institutions. Because these institutions, when they exist and function well, 
and function dispassionately, they are systems that make predictable decisions based on benchmarks and thresholds that are clear to all the players in the economy. So a society that functions in a paradigm of patronage and rent, which is what happens where you don't have strong institutions, will never truly advance. So institutions, very important. Then the final thing, strategy and risk management. We need very strategic thinking in African public and economic policy. We need risk management. African countries have never lacked the ability to dream. The real challenge has always been how to just get on with doing it. But if you're doing it without thinking it through, which is where the worldview comes in, you will have a lot of motion, but not necessarily movement. That's what will happen. You can be walking on a treadmill, you're burning calories, but you're not going anywhere. And so if that is your objective, that's fine. But if you're trying to actually get to a certain distance, then um, you need to turn your motion into real movement. And strategy and risk management is very important for this. I get the example of Tony Blair, who was prime minister in this country, not because I belong to any political party in Britain, let's be clear. I'm not New Labour or Conservative or whatever. Um, but just because it provided an example of the use of strategy in public governance. He had a famous strategy unit in Number 10 Downing Street that drove his governance agenda and ensured that a single thread of vision, communication and execution priority, in this case education mostly, ran through all the narratives of his first 10 years, of his 10 years in office. Strategy and risk management are just coming into their own in Africa as legitimate functions. Private sector firms have a lot of strategic strategy, you know, they're developing risk management, yes, in the banks and so on. But how many governments in Africa will you go into and look at their structures and see a serious unit devoted to strategy? A serious unit devoted to the management of risk? Because all the things that we take for granted that create problems for our development are risks that can be managed. If you have a risk management mindset, then you can then plan on how these risks will not crystallize, or if they crystallize, they can be either tolerated, terminated, transferred, or whatever. We have different technologies or terminologies in risk management. So strategy and risk management, absolutely critical. Let me conclude with my vision for Africa's future. I conclude that contrary to prevailing popular, the prevailing popular view about Africa rising, the continent has no automatic inexorable future. Growth, though a significant factor in economic development, is quite a different thing from transformation, which is what Africa really needs. Transformation means fundamentally improved indicators in such things as education and health care, infant mortality, life expectancy, infrastructure, and industrial production. Transformation is not resource-driven economic activity or subsistence agriculture that produces a growth myth. The myth that increases in GDP will make poor countries catch up with rich ones based on numbers that, while generally accepted as a standard of measurement, 
but in fact have debatable exactitude. The Cambridge University economist Ha Jun Chang makes the provocative but thoughtful point that a society can become better off without marked increases in GDP. You see, economics is not an exact science. At a certain point, someone saying this would have been heresy. But it's a statement I'm sure he can defend. Um, so the focus for African countries must remain that of a fundamental transformation of the structures of their economies, not the growth numbers that the current structures are throwing up. There's a very important distinction here. This implies a transformation away from the prevailing model that is presently being celebrated as Africa rising. So Africa's future is not on autopilot to some gilded age, as some people think, but it will be one that African countries create by their own economic and public policy choices. What exists now, without doubt, is an opportunity for a turnaround in our continent's economic trajectory from that of its not-too-distant past. And in this context, then, there is no need for a return to defeatist Afro-pessimism. But what the continent needs is realism and a determined focus on the right priorities. So we shouldn't feel we can't rise. That's not the point of this lecture. Africa can rise. But I don't want Africa to assume that it has risen when it hasn't even begun to put in place the structures that will assure its rights. Because if you do that, what will happen is that you return to 50 years ago when African countries became independent of colonial powers and everybody felt that we had arrived at El Dorado. Everybody felt Africa was the next big thing. 50, 60 years ago, Africa was in the book of many the next big thing. It's 50 years later, we know where we are. We went down, we're coming back up. So let's not make the same mistake. That's what I'm saying. So the most important factors, in my view, that will influence Africa's future include, A, whether African countries can develop and execute transformation strategies effectively and with discipline. B, how Africa handles the continent's burgeoning population projected by some estimates to hit 2.4 billion people in 2050. Will it yield a demographic dividend or a youth bulge? C, how African countries handle the challenge of jobless and non-inclusive growth. And D, whether the continent can develop and deploy its human capital, the most important investment for competitiveness in a globalized world. All of this, of course, will have to be anchored on the foundation that is the real secret for the success of Africa's quest for prosperity, the African mind. That mindset needs to change from one that is predominantly focused on day-to-day -day or short-term survival or progress as defined through this prism, not of a well-ordered society, but of individual affluence, affluence in the midst of mass exclusion from prosperity. And it needs to shift to one in which the mindset of Africans takes a long-term past and future view of the world and the place of the African 
in that world and what it takes to get to that place. The African mindset needs to place greater emphasis on thinking it through because action that is transformational is one that is guided by a philosophical or conceptual compass, a worldview. As we have seen, worldviews are the secret of the rise of the societies of the West and the rest, mainly Asia. These worldviews develop through a combination of historical and cultural evolutions on the one hand and through the instrumentality of propaganda and public diplomacy to the citizens of a state and the rest of the world. I explained in the book that the worldview of the West was scientific rationalism and individual liberty. This developed over several centuries and it has made the West prosperous with its own character and characteristics. The worldview of China and a lot of Asia is based on stability above all things. The importance of the clan or the society above the individual. That is a worldview of its own. It has also produced prosperity. So the point about worldviews, as I started saying, they are subjective things. But so long as they are well articulated, properly deployed, they can create objective facts. So there's no one worldview that you can empirically say is superior to the other. So Africans need to develop their own worldview. You must have a philosophical foundation for prosperity. What do you believe in? You don't become wealthy in terms of the wealth of nations by believing in no particular thing or by being blown about by every wind of doctrine. That's not what creates prosperity for nations. So, as I was saying, the place to begin is in the educational system. It is that combination of well-inculcated worldviews, knowledge and skills that produces human capital. And that's the secret of transformation. I rest the case for a truly emergent Africa. Thank you. Well, uh, I join um, everyone in thanking Dr. Mugalu for a really very bold uh, vision and provocative in some ways of an inward-oriented development strategy inspired by homegrown objectives, driven by innovation and manufacturing, with the state establishing and maintaining a firm grip on the steering wheel. That was a fabulous metaphor. So there's a lot in the talk and in the book about aid, about education, agriculture, democracy, China, GDP, world markets. Um, so we, we have a lot to discuss. Uh, my job right now is to compress what could be several hours of discussion into 19 minutes. So forgive me in advance for... Um, uh, Cutting, trying to keep the comments and questions as short. But we have a mic here, so if you um, raise your hands, uh, the mic will come to you. And what we'll try to do is take three comments at a time and then give the floor back to our speaker and then return, uh, return to the floor. So um, right here. 
Thank you, Dr. Mogalu. Um, um, you mentioned transformation and a change in the thought process and education of individuals. I grew up in Nigeria, and I've seen that there's a lot of change. And I was there during Babangida's dictatorship and things like that. And I know about the early liberalization where it was a net importing economy. How do you, how do you action this? How do you proliferate your ideas? This is a great lecture, but how do you proliferate your ideas to the larger population of Nigeria? That's the first part of the question. Um, and the second part is every community has a certain thought process, and sometimes they're victims of that thought process. How do you change the mindset? Or what's going on there, um, that has a subtext to it, which is you know, corruption in the system and things like that. How do you educate the community to rise beyond this? It might take multiple generations, but what system do you enact to do that? So we can take a couple more questions before we go back to our speaker. Yeah, somebody in, in the middle back. Mm -hmm. Um, hello there, Professor. My name's Veronica, and I'm from Cardiff. Um, can you hear me? Sorry. Okay, you can hear me? Yeah. Sorry. Uh, my name's Veronica, and I'm from Cardiff. Um, thank you so much for that speech. Um, my question is um, mostly regarding to, probably you talk about it in your book, but regarding to the aid dependency, which um, I read it in Dumbisa Moy's book. And she mentions a lot about how there's a dependency on aid in the government side. So obviously the relationship between the citizens and the governance doesn't, isn't, isn't too good. And obviously you need that to have a stabilized economy to try to get the ground up. So how do you think the solution for that would be for like majority of African countries to start having some kind of relationship? And obviously taxes and things like that to raise up. How do you think the aid dependency can be broken for growth to start? Should we take um, back here? There, we'll try to come back to you. From here. Hi, thank you so much for that wonderful lecture. Um, you had said during your lecture that you believe that the rise, of uh, the rise of Africa shouldn't be shaped by external actors, but by Africans themselves. Well, just to speak to that point, where do you think development aid stands in the rise of Africa? If development aid does, in fact, have a role in helping Africa become more prosperous, how should it be allotted and how should, be, how should, how should it be appropriated in order to make it more effective? Yeah. Oh. The floor is yours. Uh, okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Ah, great. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And um, you'll pardon me if I sit down and answer this, um, take some of these questions. Or should I come to the microphone? No. Uh, okay. is, can, can you is hear? It, can you hear me? Yeah. Is it all right? Yeah? Okay, great. Um, well, how do I spread these ideas? Uh, how do I change mindsets? I think that's a very important question. Um, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, um, to spread the idea and to articulate it in a form where it's permanent and, you know, reference can be made to it. And when you write a book like this and then you put it out, um, you know, you, you create awareness about it or the publishers create awareness about it and then people can read it and then these ideas are disseminated. So, so what we're actually doing is one way. We've done some of these kinds of um, 
you know, events in various places in the world. Um, there have been some interviews that I have given about the book in, in Nigeria, in my own society, um, and hopefully we'll be able to do a little bit more of that from time to time, the day job permitting, uh, because, of course, I must um, i have made my contribution. The book is my contribution. Um, but, of course, at this point in time, I have a day job that keeps me very busy. And so it's not possible, regrettably, for me to take on the um, role of a full-time apostle of these ideas. Perhaps others can take the ideas and run with them. Um, those who have more freedom in terms of their time and in terms of um, how they can actually use their voice. Um, how do you change mindsets? Well, that's an important question that I address in the book. Um, I, I show, first of all, that it is the responsibility of governments um, to create this type of worldview, and it can be done in a number of ways. Um, you can convene influential um, people from different sectors of the society, and they can create a vision for a society. That's one way to go about it. There's a very important role for the media. There's a very important role for the educational system. These are the instrumentalities through which you change mindsets. Um, now, in the book, I call it propaganda, and I defend my use of the word propaganda. It's not negative. Uh, certain, you know, propaganda simply means, you know, <laughs> propagation. Uh, uh, um, congregational propaganda the feeding, yeah, the congregation uh, for the propagation of the faith, you know, um, of the Roman Catholic Courier uh, under Pope Gregory. So that's the origin of that word. It means to propagate, but because of what happened during the Second World War, particularly, propaganda came to have a very negative image. But I'm using it here more as in propagating a positive message a worldview uh, that guides a society and inspires a society and fires up patriotism um, that makes people actually do things that create new realities. Um, so, so the educational system is very key. In many countries, from, from when people are young, they begin to be educated about their history. Uh, now, there's a lot of debates about what versions of history some countries are teaching their children. You know, but the important thing is that countries understand the importance of the educational system in terms of shaping the minds and the worldviews of their citizens. So you have that, you have media, you have other governmental actions. Now, coming to aid, um, how do we break the aid dependency? In the book, I have a chapter called The Call de Sac of Foreign Aid. What, and it means just that, that foreign aid uh, is a cul-de-sac in many ways. Um, it, you know, it has its uses, but it can only be temporary. It is not a sustainable path to development. And I don't know of any country in the world that has become economically powerful relying on foreign aid. In fact, in the book, I demonstrate that part, because foreign aid is part of the projection of worldviews by powerful states, 
So it, again, it comes back into the worldview thing because the countries that have the wealth and the power are projecting their worldview using the instrumentality of aid to a very large extent. And, and so when the emerging nations like China or India or Brazil, one of the things they do to show their status as newly emerging powers is that they stop receiving foreign aid. Next thing you know, they've set up their own aid agency. And as somebody said, that's foreign aid from India, not foreign aid to India. So that's a worldview statement that they're making. What this tells you is that aid serves a lot of purposes, not all of which are really about development in the real sense, in a transformational sense at least. I mean, of course I'm not talking about humanitarian aid. That's a different thing. If there's a disaster, people need to be helped. And there are organizations that exist to do that, and, and they have a pride of place. But I'm talking about sustainable development. I'm talking about economic transformation. That's a different order of things. So the promise that development aid held out, that it is a path to transformation for Africa, has not materialized quite clearly. In fact, I argue in the book that some of the international institutions that, that you know, are actively engaged in foreign aid should actually move more um, towards you know, knowledge transfers as aid. And we see that a bit controversially, but we see it in the World Bank now under the current president. That's an agenda that he's pushing. Now, I say that aid has not focused on the things that can actually create wealth. If you're aiding people by creating social impact venture capital uh, as aid, then you're helping them not to depend on you for fish tomorrow, but to teach them how to fish. And then aid would have been helpful. But aid is not often organized in that manner. It's, it's organized in a manner that sustains an aid industrial complex. And that's the problem with aid. Um, so, but, you know, um, I say that African countries should give themselves a window of about 10 years and plan how to transition out of a world without aid. Already, most of the capital flows that come into Africa, as far back as 2006, most of the money coming into Africa was private capital, far more than aid, and that trend has continued. So, actually, foreign aid is, aid is an industry in decline. Um, because many people in Africa now, and certainly the young generation that I see, I don't see young people in Africa talking about aid. I see them talking about business. I see them innovating. I see them thinking about how to create wealth. You know, so um, it's important, uh, but it's important for African governments to understand, therefore, that aid is not a path to development. Increasingly, this is the case. I've heard the African Union making statements, you know, saying, look, no more of this aid talk. This is not where we want to be going, um, and, and so on. Because a lot of people talk about Marshall Plans. In the book, I demonstrate that the Marshall Plan was not an aid program. It was reconstruction assistance to societies that were already developed, but they were set back, especially in infrastructure, by World War II, uh, by the Second World War. But they were already developed societies, to, to, comparatively speaking, in those times. You know, so that's a different paradigm from saying that societies that have been in colonialism um, and you know, were really... Um, brought to their knees by a number of external factors that they can now be. Um, no, it's, it's, that's why you see the Asian countries. When you have a worldview, you must have a chip on your shoulder. The Asian countries have a worldview and they have a chip on their shoulder. They have a point to make that, yes, we were under the colonial masters. Singapore is a classic example 
classic example. But now we're going to make it, and we're going to make it on our own terms. And when we make it on our own terms, you'll come here to do business. Not to, you're not coming here to give me aid. So that's the idea, I think, that is important. Um, so I do uh, analyze the whole matter of aid very, very uh, significantly in, in this book because it is one of the things that have held Africa down in terms of achieving its full development potential. Um, um, so, but someone said, where does development aid stand in Africa's development? Well, I think I've answered the question. Um, you know, I, I think it has a limited scope, and I think it could be done better in, if, if the objective is truly to help Africa's development. There are some other things that can be done in the context of aid that would actually have um, significant impact, especially, for example, shifting a lot more aid support to education and you know, the building of educational infrastructure, teacher training. If you train teachers, if you bring in money and say this is for the training of teachers that have so and so skills in science, math, physics, you know, technical um, things, construction, that's a very concrete help you have brought to any country you're doing that for. But you find that too little of aid, if any, is constructed in this manner. It's so so that's, that's, the, that's the problem, yeah. I think, I think I've addressed the question, yeah. I think there were a couple of questions on this side of the room. Yes. Thank you. Jane Royston from Switzerland. I have a question about corruption. Um, you didn't talk about it too much, but do you think Africa can emerge with current levels of corruption? And if not, what can be done about it? Wait, there's a right. lady. Yes. Thank you. Um, in the talk, you said, where is the Echo Atlantic for the poor, which I think is a brilliant question. Um, when it comes to projects like Echo Atlantic and large-scale infrastructure projects, especially in places like Nigeria, how do you think, or what's the... These, these projects are really heavily um, dependent on Chinese, um, Western, and other in, investments. But in the long term, how do you think... This will impact Africa's economy and the social equity problem. Um, my mom says that this is leading to a recolonialization, and do you think she's exaggerating? Then uh, here there's um, a question coming from the back. Oh, yeah, in the middle. And I'm um, high. Um, how does your book speak to the policymakers in powerful positions? Um, you spoke of uh, infrastructural development, risk management, human capital development, when, for example, in Nigeria, where there is very, very poor level of electricity supply, um, local manufacturing is stifled by imputation licenses that have been granted to political cronies or political beneficiaries. A case in time is um, the importation of generators in Nigeria is clearly a lucrative business for people who need to be in business because there is no power. And when, in terms of agriculture, rice importation license is held by very few people Hence, you know, it's actually easier to import and buy rice in Nigeria than growing it locally. So we cannot actually move into agricultural, um, I don't know, um, 
mechanical farming, so to speak. So how do the people in powerful position get this message from this book? Okay, that's three questions. So sure, yeah. Floor back uh, to Dr. Yeah, Mavala. Um, all right. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. First of all, the question on corruption. Um, I think, obviously, you know, corruption is a problem. Um, I, I, I discussed it in the book. One, uh, but I'll, I have some interesting perspectives for you on corruption. The first is that I, I argue in the book that corruption in itself is not the main problem, that corruption is the symptom of the problem. And that problem is the absence of worldviews, which include societal values. You know, if society, if a society has values, I think people will realize that corruption will be punished, and so you'll have accountability. And then if there's a strong ethical system or an ethical value system, you'll find that corruption is everywhere in the world. Corruption is not a particularly African problem, you know. I am often amused when people discuss corruption as if it was invented in Africa. Um, I, 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 I don't think that's the case. You know, for example, a lot of people accuse African leaders. They said, okay, some of the cases of, of theft of public funds and things like that, but they're all in Western banks. You know, and those banks know that those people who are banking with them, they're not exactly multimillionaire business moguls. The only thing they do is state work. So, but they don't ask them questions when they're banking hundreds of millions of dollars in their accounts out in these parts of the world. So it takes two sometimes to tango in the corruption game. Um, but corruption, definitely, uh, it's something to be, um, you know, it's, it's, it's bad, bad for development. Uh, but that's why I go back to the root of the whole thing, this whole question of the worldview. Because if it's inculcated and people have a purpose beyond themselves and their own immediate short-term survival, they can then think of the larger society and that would be a disincentive to corruption. But when you don't have this unity of purpose, when you don't have what I describe in the book as the manufacturing of consent of the governed, when you don't have their buy-in, it's every man to himself, and that feeds a corrupt environment. Secondly, there is a double standard in discussions of corruption. And I just gave an example in an interview I had earlier today. I said, listen, I read a report that you know, the European Union lost $162 billion in 2013 to corruption. I did not see it on the front pages of a lot of global newspapers. You know, the way they would be carrying with fanfare and sensation allegations of corruption that take place in African countries. That's not to excuse corruption. It's simply to say that if we, we need to address corruption uh, for what it is and to condemn it wherever we find it. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, it's for African societies to really build societies in which corruption, which you find in every society, but in advanced countries, it's more at the margins. Whereas in, developing, in some developing countries, it, it is at the center. That's the point. Corruption needs to be at the periphery, but it's an inescapable and inevitable part of human character. So, but we just need to diminish its importance and significance in the governance or the economy of any country for that country to thrive. So, so I, do, I do agree with you. The co-Atlantic for the poor. 
Um, well, you know, I don't want to get too specific about Eco-Atlantic because uh, it's just an example that I gave. Because if I do, um, it will look as if I have some personal beef against the Eco-Atlantic project. I don't. I was just using it to um, demonstrate uh, a point I was making about private sector role, about you know, capitalism and so on and, and so forth. Um, so, I, again, I'll just repeat the point I made, that I think governments need to see how they themselves, using their own resources, can complement private capital in a manner that addresses the needs of the poor, or, and or, preferably and, provide incentives to private capital to also participate in that task of, of making investments that help to lift the poor out of poverty. And someone asked, how does the book speak to policymakers? It talked about low levels of electricity, it talked about rice importation, it talked about cronies, and so on. Well, um, you know, I've tried to make the book available to a lot of policymakers in a number of, uh, and I'm still in that process. I want to send this book, or at least copies, to um, you know, all the heads of states of African countries to start with, um, just complimentary copies, and just recommend it to them as a contribution uh, to some you know, development thinking about the future and the destiny of our continent. Um, like I said, you know, there's a limit to what one can do apart from having written the book um, because one has another full-time occupation. You know, uh, but within the limits of that, um, one will always continue to recommend the book to policymakers and wherever I speak with people or in policy groups, Sure, I, I, I ask people to take a look at it. And now that it has been published by Penguin, um, you know, which is the reason why we're here, um, I think it's clear that many of you will go on to become policymakers. And so the book is already being disseminated to policymakers. Why don't you clap to that? Um, <laughs> so so um, now on the question of... Um, Low levels of electricity, of course, that's a problem in, in Nigeria and many African countries. But as you know, Nigeria has embarked on very far-reaching power sector reforms. It will take time, but these reforms will really, I believe, over the next five years, hopefully, transform the economic landscape in Nigeria fundamentally. I mean, a country that has, is using 4,000 megawatts of electricity for 107 million, 17 million people when South Africa, with 50 million, is, has 40,000 megawatts of electricity. Now, this other country has overtaken South Africa as the biggest economy in the continent. What does that tell you is the potential of this country when it has 15,000 megawatts of electricity or 20,000 megawatts of electricity? So Nigeria's future is quite bright. And I think we should not let our present challenges be cloud or our vision or give us a sense of despondency. Um, the problems are being tackled. That's what matters. The government has, has, done, has undertaken a massive privatization of electricity assets, far more complicated than anywhere else in the world. The current problem that is facing that um, power sector reform is the question of gas, the availability of gas to fire the power plants that have now been privatized. And even the Central Bank of Nigeria, where I'm, deputy, I'm a deputy governor, has the governor is very keen that the Central Bank would like to play a role in, in financial interventions that can support 
uh, supporting the banks uh, to provide lending to uh, power sector reforms, especially uh, the evacuation of gas, gas to power. So, so a lot of work is going on here, and watch this space um, over the next few years. It will change. A lot of things in Africa have changed from what they used to be, and that's why I do feel there is progress. Um, but change takes time, but it, it's moving. I have cronies. I want to tell you something. I made a statement about crony capitalism, and the point I was trying to make is not that I encourage rent-seeking or just cronies or patronage networks, no. The point is to try to be a bit more strategic in how these things are done. For example, in South Korea, the Chebols, it's, it's a crony system, essentially, but all those families that were given encouragement by the state to build industrial conglomerates, those conglomerates are what are carrying the South Korean economy today. So what is to say that African countries cannot do that? You know, so you start off from something that is not ideal, but you turn it to your advantage. So if you say in Nigeria, for example, you have Aliko Dangote, who's you know, the richest African, you want to create 10 to 15 Aliko Dangotes in strategic sectors of the economy, it's not a terrible idea. If, if you do it with a lot of thinking and consistency, it could work. And as you're doing that, you're also promoting entrepreneurial capitalism, the small-scale entrepreneurs, the women, and so on and so forth, the small traders. So if you're, if you're attacking it at that strategic level of industrial growth and you're addressing the bottom of the pyramid, it's not a bad combination. Um, now, rice importation is, is, is slowing down quite significantly in Nigeria. I mean, the level of rice importation has gone down. There's a lot of backward integration that is going on in the rice arena. So I want you to update yourself on what's happening in that space. Um, it's not all gloom. There's a lot of progress uh, being made. A lot of rice farming is going on now in Nigeria. You have Olam from foreign investors. The president just opened their factory, huge, the biggest rice mill in Africa. So again, opportunities being put to good use um, um, in Nigeria. So that's, that's my response to those questions. Well, we have been um, instructed and inspired. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So I want to announce that the book is for sale in the foyer, but our author will stay here on the stage to sign your copy if uh, you have time to stay for that. So on that note, let us thank uh, Kingsley Mubala for his talk.